This is a Federal News Network podcast. NASA, famously and consistently the best place to work in government, has an urgent need to transform itself and how it operates. That's the principal finding from the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel in its latest annual report to Congress. For highlights, we turn to the panel chair, Dr. Patricia Sanders. Dr. Sanders, good to have you on. Good morning. The thing that struck me in reading your report was that you pointed out clearly the degree to which NASA is becoming more and more dependent on commercial industry for a lot of what it does. But then you write that the agency is at an inflection point in its need for transformation. Tell us what you meant by that. They have been, over the last at least decade, becoming more and more engaged in in taking advantage of the innovations in commercial space, whereas years ago, NASA was it. They did pretty much everything for space, some military applications, obviously, but they were the developers, the operators, you know, and now there's a number of things they can almost purchase as services because they're being developed by the commercial industry for other customers. And this has a two-edged sword. On one hand, they can take advantage of these capabilities. It leaves NASA freer to push the edges of the envelope, then expand that, and at the same time, use capabilities that are being developed for more customers than one. The flip side of that, when where the safety panel gets engaged, is it has the potential that you can blur the lines on safety accountability and risk management because you're now buying something that you don't have full control of. And NASA's been working their way through this. They did it with the commercial resupply program, with the commercial crew program, and have learned a lot of lessons on how to manage this sort of thing. But that's been in one pocket of the organization, and it's been sort of, a, as we've characterized it, a tactical approach to work your way through. Not a bad way to start. But we've felt that right now, with the major Artemis initiative, the moon and Mars, where you have so many more components that are either internationally provided or commercially provided, where NASA sets the requirements but doesn't control the design, doesn't own the hardware, they do own the requirements, and they do own the responsibility for the safety of their astronauts, they needed to step back and take a strategic look at this and say, okay, what are going to be our criteria for the things that we make ourselves, that we buy as services, that we manage somewhere in between, and how are we going to manage that shared responsibility for the risk? And so the transformation then relates to that question primarily, or are there larger issues? that's That's the foundational question. It isn't that there's one size that fits all, you know, in every component of this Artemis initiative, but that you need to really decide what your guiding principles are going to be. And also, make sure your whole workforce and your stakeholders understand what those guiding principles are. You know, sometimes your people inside or outside of the organization will say, oh, NASA's going to go buy everything commercial now. That's not really true. But you can get a false impression if you don't actually establish those guiding principles and then make them clear to everyone. So we just felt with the complexity of what they're doing, I mean, they're entering into you know, some very complex environments now. They're going farther away than low Earth orbit. Yes, they've been to the moon before, but it was not like they're going this time. 
and every mission is going to be unique and have different components. So it's really time to step back and make sure you understand where you're going. All right. We're speaking with Dr. Patricia Sanders. She's chairman of the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel and, by the way, former executive director of the Missile Defense Agency. And the report talks about the differences among the various large NASA centers that each traditionally had a specific mission, and now that's getting somewhat blurred. But you also write that the competition and the rivalry among the centers still exist to some degree. Maybe discuss what they need to do to flatten that all out. Well, we did make a recommendation along those lines. I'm not trying to tell NASA exactly how to organize, but saying that they really needed to treat their center directors more like they would a board of directors of sorts. Not that you have to call it a board of directors, but they need to act and behave and be held accountable for NASA's agency strategic objectives first. And then how does my center and its capabilities support that as opposed to sort of, you know, this is my center, this is sort of my fiefdom. I want to protect my workers here and my work and be in competition with each other. I think that's in the realm of the possible, but there's uh, there's some history to overcome. Sure. I guess maybe a different generation of leadership up and coming might be able to overcome that perhaps more than people that date back to the, say, the space shuttle era. And you also mentioned the lingering effects of constant shifts in national strategy from administration to administration. It's almost like a irresponsible way of treating NASA between administrations and Congress. So there's no continuity of what they're supposed to be doing. Is that largely, do you think, over with or are there still effects from it? Well, it's hard to tell, but in the most recent shift administrations, they have managed to keep the continuity, which is given that you've gone from one very different administration to the next in many dimensions, this is one where they seem to have maintained continuity. And that's going to be important when you're saying, okay, first you're going to the moon and then to Mars. Then you say, no, we're not going to go to the moon. We're just going to go to Mars. No, we're not going to do either of those right now. We're going to do an asteroid visit. It gets hard to, one, manage your resources, but also it put them in a a sort of a place where they were developing piece parts that would be components of a capability that could go almost any direction if they could put them together right. But you pay a price in how you're integrating those and not having an overall program management because you really don't have a fully integrated management system. And they have an opportunity now, and I know that they've got some reorganization restructuring going on, and we're hoping that they will take our recommendation to heart. And we've been sort of reassured that, yes, they believe they'll need to go in that direction of having an integrated program management structure. What that structure will look like and whether it'll meet the objectives that we're encouraging them towards is still yet to be seen. Yeah, that universal interchangeable parts platform idea has rarely worked in almost any industry. It took the car companies 60 years to figure it out, and they haven't fully figured it out either. So understand what you're saying there. It's a lot harder than just having, you know, interface standards. That's a necessary but not sufficient component to this. And it's very challenging integration issues. End up with a littoral combat ship of the skies, I guess. <laughs> That's a, that could go that way. And you also, of course, you report to Congress, the ASAP panel every year, and you have some recommendations there also. Yes, we have a few there, and we have a couple of formal ones. One really, really important one to us 
It's important to NASA, but it's really important to the entire international global space community is to deal with the overall space traffic management, space situational awareness issues. You know, with the amount of debris that's collecting up there and the number of satellites that are being launched, it's really important to sort of have some rules of the road and have some leadership in this stage. And there are a lot of commercial capabilities in this country and in other places around the world that could be brought to bear on these issues. But it needs a leader. It needs somebody to take charge and go. And that's been our recommendation to Congress is designate a responsible agency and give them the resources to take the leadership role here. Not that they have to do everything. It's just that somebody needs to be in charge And a good portion of the global world would follow leadership if somebody would take it. Interesting, yeah. So in that sense, NASA is tied in intergovernmentally pretty deeply with, well, say your old agency, the Missile Defense Agency, the Space Command, the U.S. Space Force, now that there has been established that for a couple of years, and also the different other components of the Defense Department, just to name a few. Yes. So that recommendation, because we are charged to be advisors, not just to NASA, but to the Congress, we feel free to give them recommendations, too. And then there's always the recommendation, pass your budget on time, folks. Yeah, that's like pushing a wet noodle. But it's really hard to manage a program when you don't really know what resources you're going to have for the year. And it should be job one for Congress, but somehow we have not had a year without continuing resolutions since well before 2008. Well, that might be the next race. Either NASA gets to Mars first or Congress passes a budget on time first. It's also the least efficient way to spend money. Sure. All right. From the panel's lips to Congress's ears, Dr. Patricia Sanders is chair of the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Launch the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say yeah to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys, clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. Yes for less. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.